Phil Hay Show. Hello, welcome to the show. The football season coming now rapidly towards a conclusion and you can get involved with a huge range of markets on Bet365. They include first, last or anytime goal scorers and loads more. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. And with football on back-to-back at the minute, wall-to-wall on our TVs, you can catch all the Premier League and EFL games. And with Bet365's Bet Builder, you can create your own personalised bet, combining match results, players to score, number of goals and loads more. And if you can't watch the games, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow everything that's happening through live graphics and text. Bet365, the world's favourite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from the Apple App Store and Google Play. It's for over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan and with me, the jinxer-in-chief himself from The Athletic, Phil Hay. Hello, Daniel. And a man who's finally coming round to the idea of Leeds United getting promoted from The Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. It is crunch time, so don't miss out on a single word of Phil's coverage as he documents what will hopefully be an historic week for Leeds United. You can get a 30-day free trial with The Athletic right now if you get to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod get the lowdown from Leeds and our potential new home, the Premier League, as well as the best sports coverage from around the world. No ads, no clickbait, just great stories. Theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pods. Well, in another thrilling development, we're recording at exactly the same time as West Brom and Fulham are playing at the moment. It's into the second half. As it stands, it is nil-nil. By the end of this episode, we will know the result in that one and we'll be another step closer to, to filling in the jigsaw pieces with regards to our own uh, promotion bid for Leeds United. It's all going to be over in another week. Historic week potentially in store. Two cracking victories in the last seven days that have teed us up for that. What was it like being in the Liberty Stadium when that goal went in and at full time, Phil? Because I'm sure you know thousands of people would have loved to have been there, but you were. I think since the restart, it's the first time that I've I've really felt it. The performance against Stoke second half was um, was on that unplayable level that Bielsa's team do hit from time to time and, and when they get to that point are, are impossible to contain um, and impossible to stop. And and because you've got him whipping the players right to the very end, you know, 2-0 becomes 3-0, becomes 4-0 and, and even in injury time, you've got Bamford looking for that volley that, that wraps it up and makes it five. But I think after that game, if, if you'd looked at the players and the coaching staff, they were obviously very satisfied and they were very pleased with it. But it was absolutely nothing like the reaction um, to Hernandez's goal at Swansea and, and the reaction to, to full time down in Wales. And I think... Without going too far, because Bielsa never thinks like this and, and I suspect that the players would probably be afraid of, of thinking like this because of the repercussions from him. There was just that little sense of people thinking that they might have done this now. I think everybody could see what a, a crucial blow that was to, to Brentford and, and West Brom behind them. I think everybody could see the monumental difference between staying six points clear with three games to go and the gap dropping down to four, uh, mindful all the time of, of Brentford having a superior goal difference. And and. I'm not sure in the second half, as as, as much as Leeds were stronger in the, the last half hour, and I agreed with Bielsa on that, I'm not sure that any of us really felt the goal coming. I'm not sure any of us were sitting there thinking that there, there definitely was a goal in the, the dying embers of, of that game. But it comes back to the same thing with Bielsa, that there's a, a process with this Leeds team and they go through the process time and again over 90 minutes and through 46 games in a season. And, and it is to, to work the channels, to get out wide, to overlap and, and to do the things that they always do to get on the ball and, and to try and dominate. And it was just cost of finding the energy to, to make that little run and, and ailing finding unbelievable amount of oxygen to go from pretty much his own byline to, to Swansea's byline at the other end of the pitch, you know, the best part of 90 metres upfield. And, you know, Hernandez being Hernandez in the right place, not, not a particularly clean finish, but just struck in the end with the exact precision to beat Woodman's fingertips by a, a fraction. And as I say, if, if you look back at the videos and you see the players spilling off the bench and or the, out of the, the stands as it is at the moment, and Berardi jumping over the advertising hoardings and trying to kill Ailing, trying to strangle Bamford, it just meant so much. Um, and I think, to my mind, that was the that was the reaction of a team who really feel like they might have broken the camel's back now. Did you have a little cheer for yourself, Phil? I mean, I know... You claim you're not one of us, but you are now, really. I did. I think um, I think we all did. I, I say this all the time. It is bad form and it's poor etiquette to, to celebrate goals in the press box. And I always got it in the neck from a colleague at the Evening Post for 
you know, for punching there when Beckford scored against Bristol Rovers. And it, it was just unavoidable on that day because you could you could feel the creep of another season in League One. You could feel the creep of just the, the horrible disappointment that you seem to feel at Leeds so often. And it was different on Sunday because there wasn't that same level of jeopardy. It would have been four points clear if it had finished goalless. And four points clear with three games to go is, is not a bad position to be in. But I think, as I say, you know, the players felt it. We felt it in the stands. We we had Radrazani sitting three or four seats up from us in, in the press box. I think he wanted a vantage point closer to the, the pitch than the, the kind of director's area, which was right up in the gods at, at the Liberty Stadium. And, and actually, I mean, he was sort of strangely, strangely relaxed afterwards. He, I had a quick chat with him and he kind of said, look, you know, I'd, I'd have taken a point, actually. I, I would have taken a point. But clearly it's it's made a, a huge difference again, that Hernandez, Hernandez goal. And it comes back to the same thing that is when... If you support the club, you feel it more than I'm ever going to. But when you follow the club for this long, you do have a vested interest and you do you do feel it in that sense. And I think it's probably been more tense for everybody than we expected it to be in the run-in. There was all the talk of Leeds being very fit, very sharp. And, and in a lot of ways, actually, they, they have been. But I think what we didn't anticipate was Brentford coming at them in, in the way that they have and, and Brentford failing to, to miss a step at all up until this week and you know there there just was that potential in the background that it could still go wrong in the last three games and and that Hernandez goal again just changed the complexion completely and it's it's left Leeds with it entirely in their own hands and and in a position now where where Brentford just cannot afford to lose at any stage. How do the celebrations go down amongst the Swansea contingent there because it's it, it was very loud on the video considering it's a stadium with no supporters in. Yeah, I mean, it, again, it's the first time, it's been a regret really that the stadiums have been empty and particularly away from home um, because the away crowds are always brilliant in, in those circumstances. And I think as well, sitting watching the 5 0 against Stoke and the quality of the second half, it, it is a travesty that there, there aren't thousands there to see it because it's the sort of game that, that you'll remember. But I think what happens when the stadium's completely um, empty is that the, the celebrations amongst coaching staff and players and directors and club officials is amplified. So whereas you wouldn't really notice it in normal circumstances, it, it's pretty much the soundtrack for about two or three minutes. You know, it dominates everything. And I suspect it, it probably is more likely to rile opposition teams. It's, it's more likely to, to frustrate you hearing that. And it was quite funny at, at full time watching Andre Ayew walking off the pitch and, and booting the drinks bottles that were set up for Leeds drinks breaks, kicking them everywhere, just out of pure frustration because, I mean, they, a point would have taken them into the, the top six and, you know, there's slightly more on it for Swansea as well in, in as much as it's Cardiff who hold sixth place and it, it really is a, a Welsh ding-dong for that last playoff position and I think they I think they knew the value of a point from that game. I think they knew the cost of, of losing it so late on. But yeah, I mean, it's as buoyant and as kind of euphoric as I've ever seen the players this season by a mile, the most euphoric I've ever seen Bielsa's coaching staff. It was funny because there was just a very, very brief moment where Coburn looked as if he was ready to jump on Bielsa and hug him and then thought better of him because I don't think anybody ever dares mob Bielsa in the dugout. And I mean, Bielsa was a little clench of his fist, but then just turned around, wiped his nose um, with his sleeve and kind of wandered off in, in the way that he does. So, you know, it's kind of classic Bielsa um, keeping it low key, but for everybody else, it was it was very hard to overlook the, the significance of the moment felt to me, Phil, I mean, do you agree that that was the season defining performance almost? And obviously we'll know in another week's time whether that's the case or not, but psychologically it felt like it, didn't it? I think the season defining result, and it's it's a little bit premature to say that without Lee's actually getting over the line. It, it wasn't a vintage game, I have to say. I, I didn't think the referee helped. There were so many fouls in the first half. It was Betty, it, it was constantly stopping. You've got two teams in Swansea and Leeds who do like to play with a bit of flow and, and a bit of fluency. And I was expecting it to potentially open up in the way that it did between Blackburn and Leeds over at Ewood Park. And, and it wasn't really like that. And it was it was hard creating chances, although again there, there was that there was that sitter for, for Bamford, the diving header from a few yards out. Um there was the odd threat from Swansea. But it, you know, I, I think the general feeling in the stadium was that it was heading for a nil-nil draw and, and you were you were kind of looking for one little piece of magic and, but you weren't entirely sure where it was coming from in the game and you knew that, you know, experience and, and history told you that it was probably Hernandez that would come up with something if if anybody did. But a defining result, absolutely no doubt about that. And, and it's funny because there have been so many good goals this season, so many, honestly, goal of the season contenders, not just at Leeds, but across the Championship as well. All of them scored by by Bielsa's team. But you sort of wonder whether you, when you look back whether actually it'll be that Hernandez goal that you remember more than any other. 
And what is the mood like inside the club now then? You said that there's this kind of buoyancy in the wake of the, of the Swansea game. Presumably Bielsa's not getting involved in any of that. Yeah, no, you, you need to be buoyant in the right places um, and in, in the right circumstances. Somebody was telling me that, you know, last week we were all calculating seven points from four, maximum of seven points from four, and Leeds are promoted. There's, there's nothing anybody else can do about that. And, and on Friday, he was drilling into staff that last season they took one point from the last four games. So anybody who was who was presuming that seven points was was a doddle um, needed to sort themselves out. And, you know, there, there were a couple of things that made me chuckle last week. The first was Bielsa coming in after the Stoke game and saying, look, I don't think there were five goals between the, the teams today at all. And, and in the second half, I, I was sitting watching it thinking that, you know, a, a bigger scoreline would, would not have been particularly unfair reflection on what was going on. I thought I thought Stoke got absolutely slaughtered. And, you know, the, the point at which they came and came out and started to play um, after Costa scored the second was genuine watch through your fingers stuff because you, you did think you're going to get absolutely murdered here. You could tell that Leeds were starting to see the gaps and were starting to play through them and had Stoke's number quite easily. But also at Blackburn after the game, again, I, I thought Leeds were, were excellent um, over at Ewood Park and... You know, we asked Bielsa afterwards, what did you make of it? And and as translated, Diego Flores said to us, ah, it was a, a very good performance. And Bielsa kind of jumped in soon after and said, just to clarify, I didn't say it was very good. I said it was a little bit better than good. And you, you just thought, you know, you're almost there, you're over, almost over the line, but still so, so difficult to satisfy. And, you know, if, if you go back and speak to people who played with him at Newell's Old Boys when they won the title t- um, twice in the, in the 1990s, particularly the second, the Lazura when um, when it was wrapped up before the final game, they, they all talk about him being, you know, absolutely desperate on the on the touchline when Newells were one 0 down in the last game, even though it was of no consequence and it didn't matter, and you know, really stressed and really uptight um, right until the point where Ricardo Linari equalised with about ten minutes to go. It's just in his nature the the inability to to slack off, and you know, I, on Sunday I purposely um, took the chance to watch him really closely on the touchline because we were sat directly behind him. And at 64, I don't know how he does it. I don't know where the energy comes from. I don't know how he, he copes with the stress. And it's just funny because he don't really feel like deep down he's necessarily enjoying this. I think he will do with hindsight, but at the moment it's just it's just all business. Much like us, we just interrupt this broadcast actually to tell you that it's not even half time, and it's Wigan seven, Hull nil. <laughs> What what is the record winning the championship? I don't know off the top of my head, but I have to say that that is um, they must be odds on for it now. Wigan absolutely desperate. See if that was if that was Leeds with a seven nil seven nil lead, I'd still be a bit edgy. Keep it tight. <laughs> You'd still be putting your money on Hull. Put it in the corners. Second half, just take as long as you can over those throw-ins. Is is this going to be one of these games where Grant McCann comes out afterwards and says the positive is that we won the second half one nil? You never know. Right, back to business and Calvin Phillips is going to be out for the remainder of the season. Bit of a blow, but hopefully we've now got enough and we're going to see Ben White step forward. It's a blow for him. I think that's what, what I feel most. I would rather he was playing for the last three games because Leeds are easily at their best when they have Phillips in that central defensive role, um, defensive midfield role. The one saving grace, I think, is that Ben White started to look very competent there in, in the lead up to the lockdown. I mean, look, you know, I, I think having struggled to, to adapt fully to, to that position, certainly against Huddersfield, that there were no concerns at all and, and Leeds were very dominant and, and he seemed to get the measure for it about the, the difference between being at centre-back where everything's in front of you and then defensive midfield where, where it's all going on round about you and you have to be able to monitor the whole pitch. But, I mean, Phillips for me has been... You know, and I include Hernandez in this. I think Phillips has been the star of the last two years. Hernandez's ability is just a, a joke, really, at, at this level. And it's funny because, the, you know, his body's getting older. His, you know, he's got the issues with, with his hamstrings, but he's still doing it. And, and the process of thought and the intelligence just never goes away. And I suppose that's the one thing that, that you don't lose with age or, or not at that age is, is the ability to think and the ability to read the game. But... You know, Hernandez was always a good player. Hernandez was always very, very high calibre. But Phillips has been the the huge transition. He's been the player who's gone from good academy product to absolutely outstanding championship midfielder. Um, And, you know, you could argue as good as any other defensive midfielder, English defensive midfielder in the country or or thereabouts. So I'm sorry for him that that he isn't going to get to play these three games out. And, And I think, as I say, Given your choice, you would much rather have him in the team or not. But again, you would like to think that the breathing space that's been built up and the fact that there is a little bit of margin for error means that this is not, you know, it's not a catastrophic loss. To Barnsley then, and since the restart, they've taken eight points from those six games. Three points from safety at the minute. I mean, 
I mean, what are you expecting in terms of the, the match on Thursday, Michael? Are you, you going to expect Barnsley to come out as a bit? Because they're, they're in a desperate state now. They need to win and they've got a, a fairly awful run in. It's hard to think see where their wins are going to come from, given they have us Brentford who will never lose another game of football as long as the club remains open and Forest. I think they they need to try and win and I think alongside it, hope that Sheffield Wednesday points deduction arrives and hope that, you know, Hull can claw it back to seven all in that second half and maybe it becomes a little bit tighter down the bottom. But I mean, they have been there all season and it's hard to see a way out for them at the moment. So hopefully they will have to come at us and hopefully that will leave us a bit of space and we're not going into the last 10 minutes at nil-nil, desperately hoping for one of the corners to actually get meet someone in the box. He also made a good point today. He was doing his press conference um, at lunchtime and he, he was saying to us, there is a bit of a misconception that whenever a team is desperate for a result or whenever they're in a p- position like Barnsley's, the only option is to kind of throw caution to the wind and, and to start being reckless or to start gambling. But he was saying, and I think he's right about this, that just because they're, they're bottom of the league and just because they, they need a win doesn't actually detract from the, the potential sense of playing tight like Luton did and trying to pick leads off, you know, doing what Cardiff did successfully down in Wales in the first game after the restart. I, I just feel that if I think back over the two years with Bielsa, very, very few teams have, have tried to trade punches with Leeds and even fewer have traded punches with them and, and, and ultimately won over 90 minutes. I think Norwich stand out last season at Ellen Road as, as one of the few who really, really came to play and, and who Leeds on that, that evening couldn't really live with. But it, it doesn't seem to me to be the percentage play for Barnsley. As much as they do need a win and as much as the games are, are very rapidly running out, I still think they'll be sensible. I think they'll look at what happened to Stoke when Stoke were forced to come out. I think they'll look at what happened to Stoke when Stoke actually managed to keep it tight and until Tommy Smith had that ludicrous foul on, on Helda Costa. Maybe they will go for it. I don't know. Maybe they will feel that, that the time's come to, to cut loose um, and to risk everything. But it, it would be... It'd be a slightly, well, not even a slightly risky strategy. I think it would be the wrong one. West Brom and Fulham has just finished nil-nil, by the way. Right, so that adds another little bit of uh, detail to the picture, doesn't it? They're now two points behind us with a game more played, which effectively means regardless of what Brentford do, if we beat Barnsley on Thursday, then we are all but up. Just about. I think it's still all eyes on Wednesday night, though, isn't it? It was always going to be this week. It's it's Brentford who are coming for the top two, and you know it's it's felt for the last week and a half or so that one defeat is going to do for Brentford. If they, if they lose a game anywhere, that might well be them in the playoffs. But for as long as this run of wins is is going, it's impossible to switch off from them, and and it's impossible to ignore them. And and you know it's a decent result for Leeds that um, West Brom Fulham. I think they they'd happily have, have taken that, but I think that they'll be far more interested. In, in what's going on at Griffin Park. And then we look ahead to Derby. It feels like Derby's a million miles away, really, doesn't it? But um, we still have to go there. There's a lot of stuff to happen between now and then. We have to go there. And they, uh, 10 points from six games. So they've done all right, but they're not pulling up um, any trees. And the big one for them tonight is they're playing Cardiff as we record it. After we, um, after we finish recording here, they're going to be playing Cardiff tonight. So by the time this comes out, we'll know what will have happened there. But let's just look at the idea of a Cardiff win and that's going to basically finish Derby off, isn't it? In terms of their playoff shot because that's a bit of a six-pointer there. Brains on the beach perhaps there, you know. I think Derby have shown that they've they've got the uh, professionalism in that squad to, to do a job anyway. I, I'm actually quite surprised that they got themselves in the running for the playoffs. When when they came to Ellen Road, and I know they nicked a, nicked a draw towards the end, but it all felt very tentative under Koku. It felt like he was, he was trying to impose this passing style and, and play it from the back style on players who were a little uncomfortable with it and you know I, I remember saying that the number of times the ball was played out to the left-sided centre-back or the, the left-back who seemed to not want the ball under pressure um, and, and against the high press and, and would end up launching it upfield. It was very noticeable in that game but he's done a good job actually as Koku I think has kind of pulled them together in a way that will we'll give them something to, to go on um, next season um, and, and like you said you know the game against Cardiff is absolutely critical for, for them lose that and they're out the running win it and they're, they're very much in the running so it's difficult to know if there'll be anything riding on Sunday but again from Lee's perspective that that is equally dependent on what happens at Griffin Park and and 
you know, this this is kind of one of the issues with the schedule at the moment is that it's so all over the place, and and you know, you've got games coming after other games. You you've got no kind of consistency with the way the the matches are falling. The, the permutations are just changing all the time, and you know, it's hard to know this week whether Leeds chance will come at home to to Barnsley. Hard to know if the chance will come away at Derby, but you, they will. I'm absolutely certain they will be desperate to get it done before the last game against Charlton comes round. I don't want to tempt fate here, Phil. I'm going to tee you up here for a massive fall, but do you think this one, what words should I choose? Is this one going to happen? I think it is. I think it is. I think the players think it is. I think Bielsa's coaching staff think it is. I don't know what he's feeling deep down, Bielsa, and it seems to me that he's got a a very, very healthy level of paranoia, which will probably preclude him from even remotely thinking that it's done and dusted, but... They've never been this close. They've never been this close. You know, they, they've had the, the playoff final down in Cardiff, but you know, even that wasn't a that, that wasn't automatic promotion. That was a, a fight through the playoffs, which so often is the way it goes for Leeds. Last season, it was ten points needed from the last four games, and and they took one. Uh, we're at the stage now where it's a maximum of four points needed from the last three. You couldn't ask for it to be any easier without you know literally knocking the championship out of the park for six. And that goal at Swansea, I think it's a long time since I've seen a goal like that with Leeds. They've had late winners. You know, they had Aston Villa last season. They had um, they had Blackburn on Boxing Day. They had the game down at, at Birmingham this season at the turn of the year. But those kind of mid-season games where you've still got so much football left to play, the potential for things to go wrong or to go very right is is still there. I think this, this is the first time in a long time that I can remember sitting there thinking a goal now would make such a huge difference it, it would be a, a, a massive massive knock to the, the teams that are below them and I think to score it and to get it and to react in the way that, that they did tells you that they are they are very very close We can't forget that the Swansea victory came in the context of losing Jack Charlton as well at the start of the weekend which added another layer of emotion to matters and another club legend has left us in what has been a really tough few weeks from that point of view for the club and the fan base? Yeah, since April, we've had Norman Hunter, we've had Trevor Cherry, and now Jack Charlton. And without downplaying Cherry's contribution at Ellen Road and, and Hunter and Charlton, you are talking about two of the two of the biggest figures in, in the club's history. Two two very different guys in, in their own way, but very, very similar in, in the type of players they were, where they where they came from up in, in the northeast and, and what they did for the club, what what they meant for the club and when when this happens it's kind of customary to get in touch with their old teammates with the the friends to to ask for memories as as much as anything to to give those players a chance to pay tribute to them and to talk about what they meant to them to talk about them as footballers as as people and you know one of our go-to people is always Eddie Gray the sad reality is that that fewer and fewer of the the Reavy boys are, are around now and you do find yourself going to the the same names, the same voices. And, you know, I spoke to Eddie, Eddie was on holiday down in the Channel Islands and he came back to me and he said, I do want to say something, you know, because I ought to. And, I, you know, I thought the world of Jack and I want to reflect how good a player he was and, and how important he was for the club. But he also said, you know, just when you think that the bad news can't come um, anymore, it, it gets worse. And, you know, he was particularly emotional when I spoke to him about Norman Hunter back in April because, you know, I always say this, it they were big teammates and they achieved a lot together, but they became great friends um, and they were great friends right the way through their lives. A lot of them came to the club when they were teenagers. A lot of them are now in their 70s or in the case of Jack Charlton, he was he was 85 when he died on Friday. And the people that they've grown up with, the people that they've known all their lives, the, the people who they would class as friends rather than former teammates or, or former colleagues. And it is the case that, that one by one they're going and, and it's such a, you know, it's such a key part of Leeds history. It is the golden era um, above all others. Um, and again, with Charlton, in the same way as Norman Hunter, you, you cannot overestimate the, his impact here. And, and you cannot overestimate the, the, the difficulty to do what he did for one club, um, to play that many times, to win so many trophies. And what I loved about Charlton more than anything, and, and this is one way in which he differed to Hunter, was that the story of Leeds was only one strand of his tale. You know, there was so much more to him, there was so much more to his career and and his life. And I think of all the people I've come across at Leeds, he, he was as much a people person as anybody else. We covered off um, a lot of his, his early year stuff. Moscow, who's um, taking a break from this show, did a brilliant bit over on our podcast, which I'd urge you to go across and, and listen to if you want to um, get a real dive into his backstory, because Moscow obviously wrote the book for the centenary and gave us a real insight into um, 
the way things were in 1950s Britain. And you forget that he predates the Revy era to a very large extent. It wasn't until sort of the back end of his career until he really started um, getting a foothold in Revy's side when Leeds United properly professionalised and started making a tilt at the first division. No, that's right. Um, I, I was writing a, uh, an obituary or a, a piece reflecting on him over the weekend with George Culkin, uh, one of my colleagues at, at The Athletic. And I sort of got, came around to, to thinking that in a lot of ways he was kind of the, the original player when it came to the, the ethos of that Revy team. You know, away from the quality of the players and, and the ability, it was the, the kind of blood and, blood and guts and an all-in attitude, which I think Charlton had right right from the start. You know, it's that his kind of cocksure attitude as, as a youngster. People talked back then about it, about it shining through. And I mean, it, it always interests me as well that he and Reavy seemed to bang heads to begin with. They, they they didn't understand each other. And, you know, from Reavy's point of view, someone who was a big tactician and really looked at the way in which other teams could be exploited, at the way in which how you set up and how you played could actually properly influence a game as opposed to sending out 11 players and, and cracking on and, and relying purely on, on ability. He saw Charlton as reckless and he saw him as, as lacking discipline in, you know, in, in a combative sense probably, but but more than anything in a tactical sense. He was a centre-half who, who would leave his zone of the pitch. He was a centre-half who would charge forward, who would, who would try to, to overlap. And, you know, there is that famous quote from Reeves saying, if you know, if I was manager here, this is when Reeve was a player at least, if I was manager, I wouldn't play you because I, I don't think I can trust you. Um, and of course, Reeve did become manager and, and the two of them were at odds for a while. And, and I think it was 62 when Charlton very nearly went over the Pennines to Manchester United to join his, his brother Bobby. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's that kind of sliding doors moment that, that happens in football. You, you go from that where I think if Busby had put a contract in front of him and said, sign this, he, he would have gone. But it didn't happen. Busby seemed to want to look at somebody else who was already in his squad, wanted to make a judgment on whether Charlton um, was really needed or whether this other player might be good enough. And, you know, Charlton being Charlton with, with what was, I think, by his own admission, a pretty short fuse, pretty much up, pretty much up to the left, went back to Ellen Road and said to Reeve, look, is there still a contract to sign? And if there is, you won't get any more trouble out of me. I won't cause any any more bother here. And and the only the only trouble that is going to be caused is going to be with opposition strikers. And he went from that point to winning just about everything you could win as a club player and, and also internationally with England and went on to, you know, almost eight hundred appearances. And I've said this on a few interviews and a few podcasts already this week. I don't know about you, but I cannot see his record of appearances ever being beaten. I just don't think in this era it's conceivable that anybody will get anywhere near 700 appearances for the club. Even somebody like Phillips, you know, it's you'd like to think he could be here from the day he started to the day he finishes, particularly if Leeds are in the Premier League. But for somebody to go beyond 773 outings for the club would be extraordinary. Yeah, particularly when you factor in the under-23 setup as it is now and squad rotation and, and things like that. I mean, I know we're in the era of Bielsa, but we are likely to rotate the squad at some point in the future. It's just unthinkable, isn't it, the way that they manage players now? Whereas back then there were 11 players and, um, you know, well betide if somebody got injured, you might have one spare if you're lucky. And um, he just, he was there from start to finish. And to have a club that is competing in cup tournaments right to the end of the season, every season for over a decade as well. I think that was has added massively to his tally there. So we were looking through on our other podcast, you know, looking at the current squad, people who seem to have been there for a long time. None of them are over 200. So it's, uh, yeah, I think it's a record that will be there forever. And I think the thing you remember about Big Jack is that he's a character as much as anything, because many of us won't have seen him play, who might be listening to this, plenty will have, I'm sure. But, you know, for me personally, I look back to it's my dad's era and it's, it's tales passed down. And we went to interview uh, Paul Trevelyan a little while ago for one of our podcasts and for the benefit of anybody who doesn't know who he is, he's the artist who, who was basically Don Reavy's creative director for a short time. If you wanted to put a, a title on what he did, he kind of, he came up with all the razzmatazz around the, uh, the early seventies. He wanted, they wanted to rebrand us from being dirty leads to being super leads. And uh, he was the one who kind of facilitated marching on together happening as a single. He showed as one of the two original pressings of that for the warm up drills. They were his idea, you know, like showbiz, in the form of football, the target balls, all that kind of stuff. And he said, Big Jack was the one player who put up the barriers when it came to adopting the sock tags. It was always like, Paul's got one idea too many. And he was the one who was sort of saying, I'm, I'm not going to be doing that. I think Charlton could be like that. I think he could be quite obstructive to things that, that he wasn't keen on. And, and the famous story went, 
about John Charles, you know, trotting back from up front one day back in the 1950s and, and telling him where to stand at the corner, um, Charlton refusing and, and Charles getting him by the throat afterwards. And anyone you speak to about John Charles would say that for all his size and, and for all that he looked like this imposing figure, he was actually a very gentle guy. You know, he was quite difficult to rile and, and didn't get upset easily. And, and Charlton will say himself that, you know, he, he could be difficult and, and he did have that edge to his attitude, which which obviously came to the fore when, when he and Reavy um, were at odds over over how he, he should play and, and how they should go forward together, um, if at all. But, you know, Charlton was, was from mining stock. He grew up in, in Ashington in the northeast up in Northumberland and I think liked to speak his mind and, and knew his mind very clearly. You know, he, he did start down the pits when he was young, I think 15, but clearly hated it and, and gave it up after, after a few days. But Never lost touch with his roots and as, as became apparent over the weekend, there was, there was some articles written about his involvement in the minor strike in, in 84 and 85, you know, the, the support that he tried to give to local people down in Barnsley, the, the assistance he gave them, the, the sort of moral support in what was a very difficult time for everybody. And I think wherever you stand on the unions and, and the minor strike and, and everything else, you can tell that, that he understood ordinary people and, and you could tell that he understood his own people um, and I think little things like that speak for him as, as much as his football and you're right I mean I I can't pretend to speak with any authority about Charlton the player because I never saw him in the flesh obviously he retired seven years before I was born and he was a World Cup winner about 15 years before I was born and the, the thing that stands out in my head with him always is his time as Republic of Ireland manager and, and I think it's pretty unique to have been a, an English hero and an Irish hero a, a one club player and, and to do everything he did and, and he's you know in, in his own kind of unassuming way and in his own kind of laid back manner he, he's got as interesting a story as a footballer and, and a coach as, as anybody else The lovely postscript to that story about the sock tags is of course that he wore them and he signed them and handed them back to Paul Trevelyan which actually shows the sort of underlying character behind that sort of truculent exterior he was actually very very generous yeah, I think sometimes it just needed to be to be broken down. And Reavy got there with him eventually. And I think, as happens with quite a lot of footballers, started to realise that if you could manage the if you could manage the temperament and if you could manage the rascal in him, then the payoff for the, the type of centre back he was and, and the difference he'd make to the team and, and also the way in which he helped to educate Hunter alongside him um, in the dark arts and the and the clean arts as well. It was worth its weight in gold and and that ultimately is is good management. You know, you do get to the stage with some players where they're unmanageable and and where they are too much of a problem. But I think ultimately, Reavy and Charlton were able to find find a meeting point at which they both appreciated what each other were doing and and both realised that that they could work for each other. But I mean, my my only real experience of Charlton in the flesh was the the supporters club dinner in 2007 when he was the the guest speaker, he was the guest of honour. And I think to, to see him kind of hold the audience and, and work an audience almost unintentionally was was quite quite special. He knew he was being funny, but he wasn't really trying to be funny. He was just telling stories about his life and the stories happened to be ridiculously hilarious. And, you know, he kept us going for an hour and it's, you know, that, I had to say the funniest um funniest stand up I've ever seen, but it was it was right on the border of it. It was it was brilliant. Um and the story went afterwards that he lost his car in Leeds, he couldn't remember where he parked it, and they called the police to help him and the police said, Where is the car? or roughly where did you park it? And is there anything in it of any value? And he said, Well, not of huge value in terms of money, but something of value to me is the hunting rifle that's in the boot. Um, at which point the police panicked, um, got the finger out, and pretty urgently managed to to relocate his car in the streets. And he kind of drove off with a smile, you know, not bothered in the slightest, not a care in the world, didn't think anything of it, and and that was just him. Everything, everything just seemed to be fun to him. He seemed to find the fun in in most things, which I think is a, a great trait in anybody. It begs the question now then of how we commemorate Jack Charlton, because one of the discussions we had around the passing of Norman Hunter is that actually we're running out of stands to rename, and we've got a hell of a lot of players who need to be acknowledged as playing such a significant part in our history. And Michael, you've seen an idea that you've kind of been championing and I'm behind this as well. I think this would be pretty cool. It's actually, it was a Paul Trevelyan idea, wasn't it? The wave into the crowd um, was an iconic shot of that era and having that as a, as a group, because the thing is with that, it wasn't about the individuals. It was a team as much as there were some people in there like Charlton and Hunter who racked up 700 and odd games you think of that team as a unit, you don't, you don't, you don't necessarily break them down into individuals. So I think that would be a really nice thing to have. Yeah. The idea I came up with off the back of that was that maybe we could incorporate this into a new West stand. Cause we said, that's the next big thing that'll be developed at Ellen road itself on the stadium. And 
it'd be lovely to think maybe we had some sort of wall of legends and that's maybe forms part of the entrance to the stadium um, after that redevelopment's done. It's difficult, isn't it? Because you wouldn't want to take John Charles' name off that stand in the same way as you wouldn't want to take Don Reeves name off the North stand. And you know, I think Hunter is somebody who, who absolutely deserves to have a stand named after him. Unfortunately, Leeds could do with about 14 or 15, given the, the people who who rank alongside all of these guys in terms of the commitment and the, the service to the club. You know, some of them still alive, like like Eddie, like Alan Clark, like Mick Jones, guys who, who won so much and, and were part of that, that elite team. It is problematic in the sense that it's not always easy to find suitable or, or appropriate ways. And I think the idea of the, the Reavy Wave, there's some form of, of statue that, that marks that, is a really, really good idea. And, and I think... You probably unless you have a ground like Arsenal's where you you know or, or like Wembley for example where you can have plinths all the way around you, you've got a limit as to how many statues you can actually have you, you get to the point where you cannot physically have 10 15 20 but I don't doubt that they they will find some appropriate way of, of acknowledging him and they absolutely need to you know it's not even just that he's the leading appearance maker because at certain clubs it's easy to be a leading appearance maker without actually achieving much or without actually doing anything but you know those 773 appearances covered pre-Reavy and and right the way up to the end of Reavy's penultimate season and and given what was done and what happened in that that era there has to be a lasting memorial for Charlton Well whisper it quietly but we may have a memorable occasion just round the corner and you want to be looking sharp for any celebratory photos or videos that we take don't you so Harry sponsors the Phil Hayes Show a podcast brought to you by The Athletic Sick of paying too much for razor blades, Jeff and Andy set up their own company in Harry's and bought a factory to ensure quality blades at a fair price. And on that, Harry's are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. And as two Yorkshiremen and a Scotsman, we can phrase this as a simple question, why would you pay more than you have to? You can get started with Harry's trial set for just three ninety-five. You'll have everything you need for a close, comfortable shave, including a weighted ergonomic handle, a precision-engineered five-blade cartridge, rich lathering shave gel, travel blade cover so you can join the army of men who subscribe to harry's including phil you get the handle the five blade cartridge shave gel travel blade cover if you get to harrys.com forward slash phil hay right now that's harrys.com forward slash phil hay phil hay behaving with the characteristics of a despot in a, in a banana republic not allowing the people a vote on this week's part three I, I am listening to the people, you know. There, there was a lot of chuntering last week uh, when we did the, the poll, uh, which was won by Max Gradle. So we had Gradle, we had Milinic, we had Iriguchi, and Gradle won by quite a straight. But there was a flurry of comments saying, we know all about Gradle, or we know enough about him. You know, the, the people demand that the, the other subjects are covered. So I did say last week, do you know what? We will get on to Iriguchi, and we're going to do Iriguchi next week, unless, of course... Events at Ellen Road mean that nobody wants to hear about that. Um, but this week, I thought we'd go with Darko Milinic because it is a good tale, and, and there is probably quite a lot to it that people people haven't heard. So it's not that the um, it's not that the polls are forever gone. I just thought this time round we had two good options, and it was time we got into them. Well, Darko Milinic at the time was welcomed with a degree of of hope because he was Dave Hockaday's replacement. Well, there was another problem for Milinic was that he wasn't an immediate replacement for Hockaday. Hockaday was sacked on the, the Thursday afternoon after the, the League Cup defeat away at Bradford, less than a month into the season. And I'd been on his way out for, I was going to say for a while, but he wasn't there long enough for it to be a while. But we'd all been fairly sure the weekend before when Leeds were hammered down at Watford that, that he was done. And Bielsa's first plan of attack was to to get in touch with Steve Clark and to to, to try and line that up as, as his next appointment. And Clark ultimately wasn't interested. I think at the time there was some quite serious interest in him from Fulham. And, you know, he'd, I, th- I think you'd probably see how things were looking at Leeds and, and decided not to bother. And Cellino then phoned Carlo Ancelotti, who he knew, um, to speak about Paul Clement over at Real Madrid and was, you know, was interested in Clement, liked the idea of Clement coming. But Clement was on something, with it being Real Madrid, was on something in the region of about two million euros a year, from from what I'm told from people by people who were at Leeds at the time and were kind of aware of, of this conversation. And that killed that stone dead. You know, it was well beyond um the club spending power is well beyond what Chilino wanted to um, wanted to invest, so so he left it there. So what happened was that Neil Redfern picked up the team for four games, and and he had this situation where in the interlude between Hockaday going and, and Milinic coming from Sturmgratz in in Austria, Redfern did extremely well. He won three of four games. He took a point from the other, um, and it was a, a return of of ten points, which gave Leeds a, a fairly comfortable mid table position. Where under Hockaday they'd been looking like they were already 
getting themselves into trouble. Um, so it was a toss up for Bielsa whether to if it was a toss up for Chilino whether to sit tight with Redfern or whether to go with somebody else. And and in the end, and to the surprise of all of us, he went for Milinic, the Slovenian coach that very few of us were familiar with, and and he went for Milinic believing that that he could make the sort of impact that Hockaday hadn't. Well, I never understood with Milinic, Phil, was whether he was any good or not. I, I couldn't tell you a single thing about him or the football that we watched or what my opinion is of him. I don't have an opinion on him. What, what sort of a coach was he? Was he any good? Well, it's funny because before the, the lockdown started a couple of months ago, he resigned from Maribor where he'd been for four years. And it was Maribor where he ultimately built his reputation in the first place. And I was having a look at some of the coverage of him going and, and the reasons behind him deciding to quit. And, and you know, there was a feeling that his... The team has obviously deteriorated. Maribor have been dominant in Slovenia for a long time, but the team's deteriorated. It it, it isn't much cop compared to what the, the supporters there expect. And there was criticism of Milinic um, for the team being slow, for them playing a, a kind of counter-attacking style, but without any panache. You know, no real spark to them at all. Essentially, this this kind of debate about what are the tactics and, and what is his team supposed to look like? What is his philosophy and his ethos? What is it he's trying to do? And I think even towards the end, people were still a bit confused. And it does take you back to his six games in charge in that it was such a short period. And I mean, it was in its entirety, 32 days, that I suppose it's unfair to expect that in that period, you were likely to get, especially from a, you know, a cold standing start mid-season, you were likely to get an immediate big hit that told you what it was that Milinic was trying to do. But his football was very generic. It was fairly nondescript. And, and I don't think it helped that he was coming in on the back of form under a caretaker who himself had a pretty strong claim to the job on that basis and, and in the end was the person who replaced Milinic when Milinic was sacked a little bit further down the line. But it all, was all a, a bit of a mystery. And, and he'd, he'd done well in Maribor. That was the thing. In, in Slovenia, he'd won a lot of trophies and, and he'd also done relatively well with them in Europe. You know, they'd, they'd made a little bit of good progress in the Europa League. He, he was UEFA Pro qualified. He seemed to have a, a little bit about him, but he'd gone to Storm Graz from from Maribor. Storm Graz had put a release clause in his contract, I presume on, on his insistence. Um, so he, he evidently had it in his head that other potentially bigger jobs might come up. But to look at his record in Storm Graz, it, at, at Storm Graz, it, it was nothing particularly special. They'd finished fifth in his first season. They they were doing okay, and yet when he left, they and when they they finally sort of conceded defeat and trying to stop him going to Leeds, they held this press conference, quite an emotional press conference, where the chairman there looked, you know, almost on on the brink of tears. He gave him a one way ticket to Leeds. It, it was all very lovey lovey, and and you felt as if Stone Gratz thought that they were losing a, a really top and, and, and quality coach which gave you a little bit of confidence for Milinic coming in much as you, you didn't know a great deal about him but it was that environment at the same time at least it was that environment where it was it was difficult for coaches they were vulnerable under Cellino he was he was very rash and you know very quick to, to pass judgement on them as, as he had been with Hockaday and I can honestly say that between Milinic coming in and Milinic going out 32 days later I learned next to nothing about his football and I learned nothing uh, next to nothing about him either. With most managers, you start to get a feel for the personality and, and you know for the way they work, for what they like, what they don't like, what it is that drives them. But he was gone so quickly that, that we just never touched on any of that. 8-0 Wigan. <laughs> 64 minutes played. Amazing. Go on, get 10. Get 10, go on. What are they going to do though? I mean, are they going to bullet McCann after this? And if they if they do, then who the hell is going to pick them up? Darko Milinic. <laughs> maybe it's big Darko flying in as it stands that is their joint biggest ever defeat as well anyway back to this one uh, speaking of losing Milinic's record at Leeds just worth reminding ourselves of this was Brentford away lost 2-0 Reading at home drew 0-0 Sheffield Wednesday at home drew 1-1 Rotherham away lost 2-1 Norwich at home drew 1-1 and Wolves at home lost 2-1 so not a single victory do you have any clear memory of any of this Michael of, of what it was like <laughs> Not really. The only particular memory I have is the the game at Norwich, wasn't it? Where there was the the incident with Belushi, where he uh, was alleged to have said something racist, and Milinic basically was he, he came across as fairly useless in that. In that he just said, "Oh, I I don't really know. This is new. I'm new. Please don't ask me anything difficult." I think partly uh, felt touched on really the the way Chilino was running the club. It's not any great surprise that maybe we didn't get a sense of his style of play and that maybe the players didn't take to it because there must have been a vibe of, well, 
this guy's only going to be here for a month anyway. So what the, what's the point of really trying to change our style or try to impress him? Sorry, I just realised I said there the Norwich game was at home. It wasn't, it was away. Anyway, back to the point at hand. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the advantages that Redfern had was that at that time, there was the ability to lean quite heavily on some very good players who were coming through the academy. So you had Lewis Cook, you had Alex Mowat, who Hockaday had, had basically had bombed out because Mowat had gone running in the off-season and had twisted his ankle and Hockaday felt that that, that was irresponsible and... and that he was he was kind of putting his body at risk by not training in, in safer surroundings. I don't think there's anything more to it than more just missing a missing a step. Is this the same Dave Hockaday who made him go in a river? Uh, that is the, that is exactly the same one. Yes. Um, so Moet wasn't in the picture, but then he you know Redfern was happy to play him. He was happy to play uh, to play Lewis Cook. And as we got to the end of the season, you know Bloodin Phillips and you had Byram in the team as well, and and Charlie Taylor. And I would imagine that those players from the academy were able to relate to somebody like Redfern more because they'd worked with him at that level. Whereas with Milinic, there didn't seem to be that kind of understanding about where they were going or, or what they were doing. And I think Michael's probably right. There, there would have been some doubt at the back of everybody's mind about whether somebody who was fairly unknown and, and completely new to the country was going to be able to settle and was going to be able to bed into that job or would ultimately be found out. And to be fair to him, there were periods in the Rotherham game particularly, little periods in the Norwich game and the first half against Wolves where you almost started to feel like he was he was slightly getting it together. But the problem was that it never lasted. It wasn't even a case of not lasting over weeks or months. It, it couldn't last over 90 minutes. Um, so at Rotherham, they were beaten, having been 1-0 up against Wolves. They were beaten, having been 1-0 up. They couldn't get a win on the board. They couldn't get anything resembling impetus or, or momentum at all. And because it was Chilino and because of the way things were with managers back then, you got the sense pretty quickly that he might not last for long. Did you ever get a chance to speak to him, Phil? Not one-to-one. No, um, we would have seen him in probably, well, probably six pre-match press conferences and, and six post-match press conferences. Um, I mean, he had a, a fairly interesting background as a player. He, he played at Partizan Belgrade and, you know, taking part in the, the Eternal Derby. But it's very difficult to draw him on these things. He, they were kind of subjects that you thought he could have been quite emotive about and could have let his personality flow. But, you know, his English wasn't great and, and he seemed to, either he didn't want to or, or it was it was a challenge for him to, to properly express himself. Um, and we all still save, you know, the, the, the abiding memory of him in, in terms of press conferences is his last one where he walked out and just said to us, see you, like that, and, and was gone. And literally gone because about an hour later the phone calls started coming saying he's going to be sacked. You know, he's, He's going to go. I was in the car. I was in my car in, in Fullerton Park when Chilino phoned to say, "I'm I'm going to sack this guy. He, he needs to go." And it was sad for Milinic because his family had come over for the first time for that Wolves game. He'd he'd been here so for such a short period of time that there hadn't been a, an opportune point to to visit. They'd had midweek games. They'd been down in London with Brentford. You know, it, it had been really busy. But they'd flown in for the Wolves game, and and that was that was the first time they'd been able to watch him in the flesh as as Leeds manager and I mean there were telltale signs on the day um, Chilino had told Redfern to come down to the game with him and sit with him in the director's box as the game against Wolves was was playing out and, and you did think that that was a bit of a nod to what was, was coming next and, and ultimately it, it was curtains for Milinic and, and he goes down as, as the short, shortest serving manager Leeds have ever had can you put a monetary value on those days like how much in terms of compensation we had to pay to get him out of his contract and then pay him off how much did it cost us roughly well, I was told back then that he was on £400,000 a year. That was his salary at Leeds. And he was on gardening leave for the best part of two years after that, which would have taken him right up to the, the end of his deal. So I suspect that all in, that will have cost Leeds somewhere close to £800,000, not too far off um, a million quid for those those 32 days. Um, because he didn't go straight back into work. He didn't take another job anywhere else. He did ultimately go back to, to Maribor, but it was it was mid-2016 by the time he did that. So again, another one to add to the list who, who cost the club a lot of money and, you know, by no means was it his choice to go when he did. You know, I think he, he came over and he gave up at, at Sturm Graz precisely because he thought that there was something in him, in it for him at Leeds. He, he thought he could do a job here. But really, he was, he was gone before many of us found out the first thing about him. Just for the record, if anybody wants to pay me over seven and a half grand a week to pot around in my garden for a couple of years, I'll do that. Just want to go on record and say I am willing to do that. Get in touch with the podcast and um, sort me out. 
it's a lovely place, Slovenia, and I suspect he had a very nice garden before he was he was paid that amount of money to tend to it for for two years. But I think it, I, I think he took it hard. You know, I, I I think it was it was humiliating for him. And you know, obviously, we tried to speak to him afterwards, tried to get in touch. He didn't particularly want to say anything. He he did do a few short interviews with um with journalists in Slovenia where the Chileno had been pretty uncomplimentary about him afterwards. It, it pretty much said he was unsuited to it. He he wasn't ready. He wasn't up to it. And you know, I think. Milinic wanted to try and defend himself by saying, look, I know it's Slovenia and I know it's the Slovenian league, but I, I win a lot of trophies here. You know, I, I've taken the team into Europe. I've gone to Stum Graz and done, you know, relatively well there. It's been steady without being particularly spectacular. Um, and I think I think you find the politics of it and, you know, the, the kind of personal attacks on him um, hard to take because it wasn't what he'd expected and it wasn't what he'd, he'd signed up for at all. But yeah, in terms of the finances, it, it was good for him. Could he have succeeded under a different owner, do you wonder? It's very difficult to answer that. Very, very difficult. I think not only under a different different owner, but you know, it, it was apparent then that there were things that needed to change with the squad, things that, that weren't right with the, the balance of the squad or or the makeup of it. I mean, as it stands at the moment, I was having a, a good look um, through the sort of current coverage of him over in Slovenia. And there's a suggestion that the current Slovenia coach might be off to Dynamo Zagreb um, in Croatia. And they're already kind of touting Milinic as potentially um, someone who could step in as, as the national coach of Slovenia if that job becomes vacant. So, you know, he is qualified and he evidently has coaching ability. But I think the environment was all wrong. And, and sometimes, you know, some coaches just aren't suited to certain leagues, to certain countries, to, to certain styles. And, uh, that is one of the things that has always impressed me massively about Bielsa. I mean, he, he is an elite coach and he is exceptional at what he does, but he is still coming into a league that requires you to play 46 times a season, not counting cup games. It, it is a league where it can be back-to-back Saturday, Tuesday, with a lot of travelling involved and very little flying. It's mostly done on coaches and it's mostly, you know, three, four, five hours to the, the grounds further down south. And He's he's taken to it without missing a beat. I know promotion didn't happen last season, but they were they were just about there, and they have repeated this time round, and and you know they're even closer than they were. And and I think you know you should never overlook the the fact that Bielsa is an elite coach and he has this reputation doesn't change the, the difficulty of stepping into the championship and coping with it. It's extremely difficult, and and you see you see more managers struggle with it than then get to grips with it. And I do feel sorry for Milinic, but I do think with hindsight that it was probably a misjudged appointment. Big week ahead, Phil. Big few days ahead. Ones to watch, please, for Barnsley and Derby. The issue, the player, the thing we should be looking out for. We didn't mention it at the start of the show, but last week you said we should be keeping an eye on the table as it was the, the first week that Leeds could get promoted, theoretically. Now, you were right up to a point in that the table was the thing to watch because it unfolded very favourably for Leeds across the Stoke and then the Swansea games. So what is it going to be this week? It still doesn't count really, does it? Because they, they didn't go up and they didn't have the chance to go up at Swansea. I think it's going to be Kiko Casilla this week. We, we didn't mention this earlier, but Casilla is back now after his, his eight-game ban, the, the ban for for the, the racism charge that was brought against him of the allegations made by, by Jonathan Leckel at Charlton back in September. He's been kind of out of the picture and um, in a... You know, in the, in the sense that nobody's really been talking about him, nobody's been thinking about him. Um, nobody's really had any cause to think about him because Elan Meslier has been, you know, has, has slotted in comfortably behind the defence. He he hasn't looked out of sorts. He hasn't looked um, particularly nervous. His distribution has been good, and and the clean sheets are, are piling up. We asked Bielsa earlier about Casilla. You know, what's going to happen? Is he going to be involved? And he's normally pretty open about these things. He he normally says what he, what he feels or, or what he thinks, but. His answer to us was to say that he, you know, he didn't want to comment because he wanted to speak to the players first, and he hadn't finalised the team, um, and it was important that they knew the team before before any of us do, which I totally agree with. It's just that Bielsa does tend to telegraph this stuff and, and isn't normally shy in telling you, and and it's hard to know what to read into that. I don't know whether there's a strand of the Augustines in that, which hints that we might have seen the last of Casilla. I don't know whether he is seriously thinking about bringing him back into the fold, into the eighteen. I, I cannot. I cannot for a minute believe that he'll knock Mesley out of the team. I, I just don't see that happening. It would be so unlike Bielsa, particularly with the way things are and the way the form is and, and the way Mesley has been coping behind the defence. It, it would be fairly nonsensical. And I actually don't think that in the main this season, 
Casilla has been so good that he deserves to come back into the team. I mean, there's a much bigger issue here with the, the racism offence. And as we said on the podcast that we did after the, the verdict was announced with with KG, I, I do have big concerns about what was in the written verdict. I think it, it shone a pretty poor light on Casilla and, and other people at the club. I, I think there has to be a question as to whether or not Casilla can play for the club again. I, I really think that is... That is up in the air. I think that is something that the club themselves are going to have to decide when this season comes round. And I just wonder, are we, are we going to see him back on the bench or is Bielsa going to stick with Mesley and, and Majacek? Something tells me that the, the second option, Mesley and Majacek, is, is the way to go um, as it stands at the moment. But we will see. What's he conceded across these games that he's been sitting in? Is it, It's four goals, isn't it? Across the eight. Yeah, and, and five clean sheets, I think, which is always, always helped by the, the defence in front of him. I mean, Leeds, Leeds are up to 20 clean sheets now, which is an unbelievable figure in the Championship because it's a bit like Brentford on this run they're on. It's very difficult to do that, extremely difficult to do that because the division does kind of bob and weave and it, it ebbs and flows. And, and teams who quite often you expect very little of start to... To find something, find something in them, um, just just when they need it. But I think it's probably too early to say for definite that if Leeds go up, he's somebody who should automatically be number one. I, I think he's going to be tested far more in the Premier League, and that's the point at which you'll really find out. But he's given himself a shout, and you know it's it's that evolution of goalkeepers now, isn't it? You used to talk about how many saves they made, and you used to talk about how good they were with their hands and everything else. But but nowadays. And Bielsa is no different. You look so much at what they're doing with their feet, and he's very good with his passing. He's very good at seeing options further downfield. It's it's almost essential given Bielsa's tactics that you have a goalkeeper who who can do that. And I don't actually think Casilla was weak on that front, but I do think some of the basics of Casilla's goalkeeping were were pretty disappointing at times. And I think I think because of Casilla's wage, um, because of the the reputation he had coming in as you know this Champions League winner, albeit as a substitute at Real Madrid, but nonetheless in that top-level squad. I don't think he's lived up to it. I really don't. I don't think, given all that, he's been anywhere near as good as you would have expected him to be. I don't think he's represented very good value either. I think that's at the crux of this. And I suspect my gut feeling is that we've seen the last of him at Leeds. I think maybe he makes the bench, uh, but I imagine Meslier is going to um, retain his place. You actually made a really astute observation on the Square Ball podcast, Michael, when you were talking about how it's being covered on TV and that directors seem to be focusing less on Meslier. You know, you, you get the close-up of Casilla every time there was a corner against Leeds and they you, know, you fully expect some sort of gaff or error because we got to that point with him and yet putting Meslier in has just removed all that anxiety. Casilla, just, he just loved getting involved with people as well. If someone was stood in front of him, he just wouldn't, he couldn't resist getting involved in a shoving match with them and he, he didn't get under their skin. It just, he only upset himself with it all to the point where he'd, he sort of, he almost seemed to sometimes decided what he was going to do before a corner came in. He was either definitely going for it or definitely not, and it was often the wrong decision. I feel as well that the, you know there is a wider issue here of the the prevalence of the Black Lives Matters um, protests and, and the the way in, in which we're seeing players taking the knee before kickoff. You know, the, there's a definite juxtaposition between that and and what went on between Casilla and Leco and, and ultimately the verdict of from the FA and you know it, it is all, always important to say that Casilla denied the charge and still does you know he vehemently denies that he, he racially abused Leco but as I say the written verdict did not reflect well on him and I think an awful lot of people and I, I think a, a large percentage of Leeds fans as well read that read through the written verdict and felt very differently about Casilla to, to how they'd felt when the, the original decision was first announced minus the context of of the written verdict and it just seems to me that at the moment the squad is, is beautifully settled you know you've got Mesley who looks comfortable you've got Majacek who Bielsa was asked about today and, and said you know he's he's worked hard and he deserves it you know he deserves to be in that position and then you've got Casilla who obviously has had these issues and, and hasn't played for many many weeks now has had this long stint away and has been training with the club so it's not as if he's you know he's been ostracised he did go back to Spain for a few weeks after the, the ban was first imposed but it hasn't been involved in the way that, that others have and it, I just feel that, that the way the squad is at the moment is the way it should stay Well it remains to be seen and beyond that let's keep an eye on Bielsa as well because if you know, touch wood and everything else and cross your fingers and toes and everything else you can possibly cross that this week is the week when we achieve it. I just want to see what Bielsa does, just how he celebrates the moment. I think as well, it's, it's a moment you're going to remember, you know, in, in 20, 30 years' time in the same way as you do with the, the Wilkinson squad. And Bielsa is going to be the, the image of it forever. He's going to be the emblem of what happened here. And I, 
suspect you'll get a very sort of muted reaction. I think you'll try his best to leave other people to take the attention um, and to take the acclaim. And I don't doubt that it'll be the same when he speaks afterwards. But, you know, it's it's not all about him because, you know, you've had some players who have elevated themselves in, in a spectacular way and, and who've been brilliant for, for two seasons. But it is largely about him, and I mean, it's it's going if it if it happens, it's going to go down easily as the best appointment Leeds have made since since Wilkinson, and it's going to go down as a, a spectacularly brilliant gamble. You know, the decision when they were chatting about how to replace Heckenbottom, you know, after the end of that season, and, and as they were sitting trying to work out what to do, whether to go with Heckenbottom, whether to go with somebody else, and Radizani saying to Otto, look. If you could have anybody, who would who would you have? And it wasn't a case of, well, I'd love Guardiola or I'd love Simeone. It was a case of, I love Bielsa. It's highly unlikely, but he is out of work. So why don't we don't we try? And it just goes to show from small acorns, you can grow very big trees. And if we do get there, I dare say that's a conversation for another day, but let's get there first. And uh, get involved with The Athletic if you want to read every word of Phil's coverage of what we hope will be a glorious week for Leeds United. Every step of the way, Get your 30-day free trial by heading to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. We'll speak to you next week. Fingers crossed it's full of glory. See you in a bit. The Phil Hay Show.